Please join with me in prayer. Father, I ask that You would uh, fill us with Your Spirit that as our ears and our brains are filled with um, the proclamation of Your Word, that uh, You would uh, implant it deeply into our hearts and that we would not only hear it, but that we would put it into practice. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. If you are visiting with us, we are working our way through uh, the book of 1 Timothy. So we have just recently begun. Here in verse 17, I was uh, grateful to Philip Ryken, uh, one of the commentators. He helpfully pointed out in his commentary on this passage that the city of Ephesus was the hometown of the Temple of Artemis. Temple of Artemis was one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple uh, was uh, 425 feet long, 225 feet broad, with 127 white marble columns. Each column stood 60 feet high. It took two centuries, 200 years, to build this temple. But when Christianity took hold in the city of Ephesus, it would surely mean the end of the worship of Artemis. In fact, even during the two years that Paul was in Ephesus, the silversmiths who made the miniature idols of Artemis were outraged that the preaching of the gospel had so taken root and therefore had so hurt their business. In fact, you can read about the, them and their outrage in Acts chapter 19 uh, if uh, you would so uh, desire to do so. Not now, but maybe this afternoon. Uh, the worship of Artemis has indeed ended. The temple of Artemis has long since fallen. In fact, if you to go online and, and look up the Temple of Artemis, you can see one column that is still standing and about one-third to one-quarter of another uh, temple. That I mean, uh, one of those white marble columns that has eroded away, fallen over, and you can still recognize that it used to be a column. Otherwise... It's impossible to know something so great, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world was ever there. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, um, remember, wrote not only to Timothy, but this letter was intended to be written or to be read to the congregation in Ephesus. And God is reminding them in no uncertain terms that the God of the Bible is the only true God. There might be people who would look upon the temple of Artemis in all its majesty, especially in that day and age when there was hardly anything in the world like it, and think that because of the majesty of this building, there must be something to this Artemis. 
And God and Paul is saying, no, there is only one true God. In fact, I believe it is well worth our time this morning to examine the single sentence here in verse 17, to examine this majestic doxology that declares God's glory. Because many, unfortunately, even in our day and age, have a smaller conception of God than is described in the Bible. Sadly, many in our nation have a conception of God that is closer to the description of Artemis than to the biblical description of the true and living God. Uh, I'm tempted to describe Artemis. I'm I'm not going to do that right now. Um, It would get... Um, a bit risque, a bit uh, inappropriate. Um, and if you were to look look up a picture of Artemis, you'd know what I'm talking about here. Um, and people in our day and age, the conception they have of God is so much closer to, to the ancients' conception of Artemis than to the God of the Bible. Sadly, um, even in our churches, few entertain uh, anything approaching a biblical conception of God's being, His nature, and His attributes. It behooves us, therefore, to study God this morning. C.H. Spurgeon has well said, nothing... um, will will so expand the intellect. Nothing so magnify the whole soul of a person as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the Godhead. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of, of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. He continues, the proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. The highest science the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, and the works, and the existence of the great God which He calls His Father. So, the first thing we see as we look at verse 17, as we examine this majestic sentence, is that God is the King of the ages. Being the King... God exercises His sovereign rule. He exercises His sovereign rule across the ages. He's the King of the ages. He exercises His sovereign rule from eternity past to eternity future. The sovereignty of God means that God actively exercises His kingly rule over everything in His creation. Yes, that means He exercises His sovereign rule over you, over your family, over our nation, over everything. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God has a plan and He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Or as Isaiah 46.10 says, My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. 
God is the King of the ages. He is the Sovereign One. God does not enter and exit our life only when there's an emergency. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble because He is ever-present. And He is always actively working out His purposes in His creation. The sovereignty of God means that God is God in fact as well as in name. I'd been a Christian quite a little while before I realized that God is God and I'm not. Now, I became a Christian. I fled to Jesus, earnestly fled to Jesus. But I had been taught to think that He was my servant. And it was not until later that I realized, no, the triune God is God. He is the sovereign God. I am to be His servant. Now you might be thinking that Jesus is the King of kings, so this phrase must be referring to Jesus. No, this phrase is referring to God the Father. The Father and the Son exercise a co-regency. The Father and the Son reign together. There's no competition between the persons of the Godhead. The work of the Son is to glorify the Father. And when the Father's glorified, so is the Son. Being that God is the King of the ages, He is your King. Have you submitted yourself to Him? Does He rule your life and your heart? Philip Ryken, in his commentary, was reminded of the popular bumper sticker that reads, God is my co-pilot. He said, this is the kind of relationship many Christians want to maintain with God. They want to stay in the captain's chair. God's over here in the co-pilot's chair. They're willing to turn over the controls only when there's an emergency. But God is not an on-again, off-again king. He is the king of the ages. You know, isn't that true? You know, even the world is willing to acknowledge God to an extent. People are willing to acknowledge Him as long as He's not on the throne. They'll allow Him to be in His workshop and fashion the world and make the stars. They'll allow Him to be seated in His seat of mercy to dispense His blessings to them, to give them help when they need help. But when God ascends His kingly throne, His creatures gnash their teeth at Him try and deny Him His sovereign rule over their lives and over their hearts. R.C. Sproul famously said that uh, people um, without the Spirit of God, people who do not know Jesus Christ, hate God and would kill Him if they could. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the man, <clears throat> the man without the Spirit... Um, is uh, an enemy of God and does not do His will, neither is He even able to do so. Such is His hatred, His utter contempt for God. And so they will not um, rejoice at God being on His throne. Do you rejoice at God being on the throne of your life 
Do you rejoice in His rule over you? Do you love His commandments? Do you love to do His will? Does it break your heart when you have dishonored and disobeyed Him? Is He your King, in other words? In this next phrase, we'll see that God is immortal. God is the King of the ages. He is also immortal. God God always has existed. He will always exist in eternity past. Before anything, including time, existed, God dwelt all alone. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God. Because God alone existed. There was a time when there was no heaven. When there was no earth. When there were no, when there were no angels to sing His praises. When there was no universe. There was nothing. No one but God. And that, not for a day, not for a year, not for an age, but from everlasting, God existed. During eternity past, and I'm quoting A.W. Pink here, Uh, A.W. Pink says, During eternity past, God was all alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, in need of nothing. Had a universe or angels or humans been necessary to Him in any way, they they would have been called into existence from all eternity. Creating them when He did added nothing to God in His essence. He changes not, therefore His essential glory can neither be augmented or diminished. God did not need to create us. God did not need to create the angels or the universe. God did not need anything. From eternity past, He was perfectly self-satisfied. Perfectly happy. He chose to create. He exists in complete self-sufficiency. We try as we might, can never add to or subtract from Him in any way. Neither can we bring Him under our obligation. Um, The Apostle Paul underscores God's immortality at the end of 1 Timothy when he says, God is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to Him be honor and might forever. Amen. Did you hear what he said in the middle of that uh, doxology? God alone is immortal. Even in eternity future, God alone is the only one who is immortal. We will live for eternity if we are in Jesus Christ. But it is because He sustains us. God does not relinquish His care and His grace from us for all eternity. From all eternity, you are going to be upheld by His grace. He doesn't just wind us up and turn us loose in eternity. He keeps us. Keeps us in the fold of His hand for all eternity. We grow old. We change as we age. Children, as they grow up, they grow stronger. 
But then we begin to grow weaker. We develop wrinkles. We develop gray hair. We develop aches and pains. And then we die. So we learned in the book of Ecclesiastes, God does not grow old. He does not grow wrinkled. He lives forever. He doesn't become less powerful. He doesn't become less holy. He doesn't become less just. He doesn't become less loving. So He was. So He will always be. Next, God says, or sorry, next Paul says that God is invisible. The children's catechism asks the question, Can you see God? The answer is, No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do. Some consider God's invisibility a, a a disadvantage. You might hear them say, if God is so real, why can't I see Him? If He would only come down from heaven and reveal Himself to me, then I would believe in Him. Haven't you heard that before? I think we've all heard that kind of reasoning before. We might have even thought it ourselves. You know, it's a good thing we can't see God. He is so full of glory that we would melt immediately in His presence. Remember how Moses wanted to see God's face and God would not allow him? God put Moses in the cleft of the rock so that Moses could not see the brilliance of His glory? Or remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus on the night in which He was betrayed? They came to Him in the garden. They asked Jesus if He indeed was Jesus. Remember what He said in the Greek, Ego eimi, translated, I am. And what happened? (laughs) All these soldiers in all their armor fell back on the ground. The most amazing thing. It's even more amazing that they got back up and still wanted to arrest Him. But what I think Jesus did in that moment when He said, I am, referring back to Yahweh, I am that I am. Jesus revealed just a little bit of His glory. And the soldiers were rendered helpless. Had Jesus revealed His full glory to them, He would have knocked them past the moon. Another reason it's a good thing we can't see God is that there are aspects of God's being that we as finite creatures in our capabilities, our limited capabilities, this side of of paradise could not sufficiently grasp were God to reveal Himself in all His glory to us. But this does not mean that our God is unknowable. God was so intent on our knowing Him that He sent His beloved Son into our world. He clothed His beloved Son um, with a human body. God made Him visible in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is both divine and human. John chapter 1 verse 14 and then also verse 18. John fourteen, uh, 1.14 The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. Moses was unable to see His glory. Moses had to be hidden from His glory. 
that John says we see His glory in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Going on to verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made the Father known. God can only be known by our beholding Him in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, you are entrusting yourself to the Father as well. When you enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you know the Father. The next phrase in this glorious little sentence is that God is the only God. Although I think everybody here would give immediate consent to this truth. I hope everyone would. That God, the God of the Bible, is the only God. It bears our attention. It is possible that we can have such man-centered thoughts about God that we have reinvented Him into something other than He is. God complained to ancient Israel in Psalm 50 verse 21 saying to the Israelites, you thought I was exactly like you. This reminds me of Martin Luther and what he told to Erasmus. He told Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. We must stay closely tethered to the Bible to form our thoughts about God. The God of Scripture is vastly different than the God of our culture. The conception of God that most people have is nothing more than an idol, an invention of fallen, godless people. They have created God to be their servant. They have created God after their own image. The world wants to refashion Him into an elderly, weak pushover. Or they want to refashion God after the triune the evil trinity of me, myself, and I. No matter how enthusiastically they believe their conception of God to be, it does not change who God is. He is the only true God. To the Christian, He reveals Himself as a tender Father. But regardless of what the unbeliever, what our culture, what the world would want to believe, to them, to the rebellious sinner, he, can, he reveals Himself as a consuming fire. And so this phrase, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. So it concludes here, Paul concludes this majestic sentence saying, to, um, to God be honor and glory forever and ever. What does it mean to, uh, for God to receive honor and glory? Well, to give God honor is to give Him what's due Him. It is to show God proper respect and reverence that He deserves. Um, the English word for worship is derived from the word worthship. To worship God is to declare His worth. 
to declare God's glory is simply to declare that He is glorious. God has all honor and all glory in Himself. When we gather together on Sunday morning, we are declaring God's worth. We are declaring His glory. We are not simply adding to God's glory. It's impossible for any of us or for us collectively to add to God's glory. He already has all glory. What are we doing here on Sunday morning? Are we adding to His essential being? No, that's impossible. But rather, we are declaring what is true of Him already. When we gather, it's tempting to think that Dale, uh, Bonnie, uh, the choir, the instrumental ensemble, Jimbo, or even myself um, are the performers that we're up here giving you the show and that you are the audience. I violently reject that. You are the performers. Myself, Dale, Jimbo, choir, we're just your servants help you give God the glory that He so rightly deserves. So if you're the performers and we're your servants to help you perform, who's the audience? God is the audience. We are here for God and for God alone. He deserves the honor and the glory. Why do we sing hymns? We sing hymns simply because they, lead, they lend themselves to congregational singing. We want you to be actively involved in the worship of God. We want you to be actively involved as prayers are being offered. We want you praying along with us. As the Word of God is read, we want you reading along. We want you following along. We want you actively engaged. In every sense, we want you to be engaged with God. As I'm preaching, I'm just His servant helping you to do that. Modern worship has moved from performers out in the congregation to a performance up front. And it lends the congregation to thinking that they are the audience. And so you'll hear people talking about whether they enjoyed worship or not. The question is, does God enjoy our worship? Is He the focus of our worship? Are we God-centered in our worship? We want God to be front and center because to Him be the honor and the glory forever. The temple of Artemis is in ruins. All the false gods of our generation, all the, the gods that, that we lean upon in our day-to-day lives to serve us and try and bring us significance, they too rely on the ash heap of history. But the worship of the true God will endure forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, You indeed are the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And so therefore, to You be honor and glory forever 
endeavor. Help us to keep you front and center. Help us to trust in you always. Help us to lean not upon ourselves, but upon you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.